Well, you can join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have one with you, we have them under seats nearby, so you can grab one. And we'll be focusing our attention for our time together on a paragraph from this letter in the book of Ephesians. And we're seeing over the course of these months that we've been in this letter that this book is about how the gospel, this announcement of God's radical, surprising grace for sinners like us through Jesus, that this gospel is relevant for every moment of every day and has implications for every corner of our lives. So Ephesians is really a sustained celebration of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and His grace for us, and how that grace is meant to transform us, to enter into our minds and change the way that we think, the way that we view the world, how we feel, what our deepest values and affections are, and therefore how we speak and how we act and how we treat one another. It's meant to change the whole culture of local churches and out from that, cultures of the world. And so in our text this morning, we're going to see two realities that should mark the lives of those who are being transformed by God through the gospel. And these two realities are wisdom and the Spirit. Now, we often don't hold those two together well. Some of us tend to feel more comfortable with an emphasis on wisdom. Maybe you're the thinking type and you like to analyze life, you like to think everything through, you resonate with a statement like the unexamined life is not worth living, you see the value of wisdom, you think maybe the main problem in this world is that people don't know how to make wise decisions. Others of us tend to feel more comfortable with an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. You're a feeling type perhaps and you want to experience things, you want to experience God and you think The great problem in this world is that people do too much thinking. They're overanalyzing things. They don't just seek an experience of the Holy Spirit. What strikes me about this text is how both of those are held together. Real spiritual growth is marked by both wisdom from Jesus and emotions from the Holy Spirit. So let's look at both of these together. We'll see the wisdom-seeking life and the Spirit-filled life from Ephesians chapter 5, and it's verses 15 to 21. Let's read this together and then pray. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, or psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, the wisdom-seeking life and the Spirit-filled life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that by the felt power of the Holy Spirit, 
you would transform us to seek your wisdom in Jesus, the will of your Son for our lives, and to be transformed by the Spirit, to be filled with thanksgiving for everything all the time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the wisdom-seeking life. Well, Paul shows us here, as elsewhere in this letter, the, the relevance of Jesus, who He is and what He's done for every aspect of life. We can't compartmentalize our lives. We often compartmentalize the faith. I do. It's natural. We tend to think about Jesus at certain times and in certain kinds of events in our life. We think about Him when we gather on Sundays, when we read the Bible and pray, when we have a spiritually oriented conversation with someone. And Paul shows us here that the Christian life is to be a moment-by-moment reality of being transformed by God's grace. Jesus is relevant to every part of life. And we see this again in how He started this section that we just read. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. So this image of walking, we've seen this several times so far in Ephesians. It's a metaphor for the course of our lives or our lifestyle. It's a way of referring to everyday life. So our walk refers to how we take every step in our lives, how we act in every moment. And this has actually been the dominant image that the Apostle Paul has used in this letter to refer to everyday life. This is the fifth and the last time that he uses this image of walking in chapters 4 and 5, and this is kind of a culmination of sorts. He says, look carefully then how you walk. So here's what he's saying. Be incredibly careful as Christians who have come to know the true God. Be incredibly careful about how you live in every moment of your lives. So this is a call to incredible intentionality with life. So what does it look like to live with the kind of intentionality that he's calling us for? Well, we do this in two ways here. First, he says to make the best use of your time. You can see that in what he says immediately following this in verse 16. Making the best use of your time because the days are evil. So how do we make the best use of our time? Well, the most obvious way is to not be lazy, right? But notice, he doesn't just say to use your time. He doesn't just say, make sure you're doing things all the time, right? He says, make the best use of our time. So, this speaks to priorities. You can be an incredibly busy, successful person and not make the best use of your time, right? Uh, What happens when we misprioritize our time? Well, we can have a checklist of things to do that has 20, 30, 100 things, eight things, five things, any number of things to start our day of things that we think we need to get done in that day. And then we go at it and we start checking them off. And then we finish the day and we put the last check mark in that checkbox. And it leads us, though, to ask this question. Verse, eight, verse 16 does. Were those 20 things the most important things for us to do today? In doing those 20 things, was that the best use of our time? Or did I get those 20 things done while neglecting three of the most important things in life today? A large part of wisdom isn't just about being busy, right? It's about being busy with the best things. The book of Proverbs is 
you know, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is the book of wisdom. It's all about wisdom. It's incredibly helpful. And one of the repeated words in that book is the word better, because throughout that book, there's these contrasts that are saying this is better than this, often two things that are important in life. But it's, it's helping us think through what's better than this and pursuing what's better. So wisdom is not just about doing good things. It's prioritizing the best things for the glory of Christ. And so this often applies to how we use our time when we're busy, but of course it applies to when we don't feel that busy as well, right? For example, how much time do you spend watching TV or Netflix or scrolling social media posts? I encourage you to actually add it up um, or just pull out your screen time notification right on your phone and just sometimes that can be really discouraging, so brace yourself. Um, and then just ask yourself this question, is this the best use of your time? Maybe it is, but ask yourself the question, is this the best use of your time? So how do we evaluate it? How do we know if we're making the best use of time? Well, the next guideline here helps us. So first, we make the best use of our time, but then second, we learn the will of Jesus. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I've met a lot of Christians that get very confused about discerning the Lord's will for life. If you'd like to think this through, by the way, uh, there's a great little book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. We have it in the resource corner. It's a quick read. I remember reading it in just one setting. So helpful. But what does this mean, to know Christ's will? Well, we need to distinguish a couple different ways that the Bible speaks about God's will. First, God has a sovereign will. This is His plan for everything in human history. He is working everything together according to His purpose to unite everything in and under the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, God has what we could call His moral will, His will of desire, which we learn by hearing His commands. Now, we get confused when we think we're supposed to find out God's sovereign will for our lives, but God often keeps that hidden from us. It's a secret from us. When God calls us to know His will, it's either usually about this big overarching purpose that He has to unite everything in and under the kingship of Jesus, or, or it's about how He wants us to live morally in becoming like Jesus. So, Kevin DeYoung helps us here. He wrote, we want to know how his individual specific plan for the who, what, where, when, and how of our lives. We want to know his direction. So, here's the real heart of the matter. Does God have a secret will of direction that he expects us to figure out before we do anything? And the answer is no. God does have a specific plan for our lives, but it is not one that He expects us to figure out before we make a decision. So God cares about our decisions. He cares about what we do every moment of every day, and He will help us make wise decisions by the Spirit. But the way He helps us is not to mysteriously communicate to us moment by moment decisions that are often amoral, but instead to transform our minds and hearts to make decisions that reflect His character and His priorities, to help us discern Christ's values, and to act accordingly with wisdom. So, very practically, I want to address a few practical ways we can make progress here. 
So how do we learn the will of Christ for our lives so we can make these decisions that please Him? Well, first, we grow in learning Christ's will from the Bible. Psalm 119.99 has been a great encouragement to me with this. It says this, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So it's a prayer. He's talking to the Lord saying, I have more understanding than even my teachers. Why? Not because just brilliant and bright, but because, he says, your testimonies have been my meditation in my life. So wisdom often comes with age, but more importantly, it comes from learning God's Word. Some 15-year-olds have far more wisdom than other 50-year-olds if they've learned how to treasure Christ and live in light of that treasuring of Him. So we walk in wisdom as we learn the will of Christ from the Bible. And what is at the heart of His will? It's to follow Him and to make disciples. Or as we talk about it in our purpose statement as a church, to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ, who are a community of worshipers on mission. It's to be and make disciples of Jesus. So this really helped Christina and I a while ago. Maybe it was a couple years ago when this kind of moment happened one evening where clarity was brought again um, to me. There was a stretch of several weeks where I was kind of just sinking into a low-grade depression. Christina and I were kind of getting tense with each other quickly frustrated with each other. And then, I don't know what spurred it or sparked it, but we kind of realized uh, we're kind of wasting our evenings. We're not making disciples with our time. We're kind of just doing our thing, figuring out what thing to watch, going to bed, not, not having people into our home, being hospitable, being intentional to encourage people to know and follow Jesus. And so it was a turning point. We started opening up our home again, being intentional, and pulled, pulled out of that. Of course, this isn't the answer for depression, but it helped me because I often do sink into that when I just lose a sense of vision for my life. And so that's, that was just really helpful uh, for us to recognize that the will of Christ is for us to make disciples. And when we're out of sync with that, of course, there's going to be this kind of funk that comes over um, our lives. So a second way that we discern Christ's will is by learning wisdom in community. So growing as a Christian happens as we talk with each other and learn from each other about how to follow Jesus. So I encourage you, talk, if you don't already have a habit of this, talk with other Christian friends about decisions in your life. Not just the big ones, but just everyday decisions. Talk through how to handle a coworker that's um, hard to interact with. Get advice on whether or not to take a different position at work or get advice about parenting. Find people who are down the road a little bit. Um, from you in life and learn from them. I encourage you, if you are a parent, to sign up for this parenting class that's starting in a few weeks. Get wisdom about dating. Get wisdom about marriage from other people who know Christ and are seeking to follow Him. Third, disciple and mentor other people. If you have been already growing as a Christian, then find others to meet with for lunch, for coffee, for a regular rhythm in life. Have them in your home. Read the Bible together talk about resources together, talk about life together, be intentional to encourage them and be encouraged by them and learn from them as well. And parents have an incredible opportunity to talk about the will of the Lord uh, with their children. It's one of the reasons why God created family structures as He did. The book of Proverbs is framed as wisdom from a father to a son, a father talking to his son about how to treasure his, the, the son's mother's wisdom and his wisdom ultimately from God's Word. So, Proverbs 
is present in our home quite often because I don't have the wisdom, um, but Proverbs does. So we open that together as a family. And fourth and last, um, identify and repent of spiritual pride. One of the greatest barriers to seeking wisdom is thinking that we've basically arrived. We basically have enough. And that can be called spiritual pride. So we have to be careful, even as those who are seeking to mentor and make disciples of others, because a good leader is always a learner from those whom he or she leads as well. Spiritual humility is essential for spiritual growth. I was just reading about spiritual pride, with, uh, spiritual pride from uh, Jonathan Edwards. I was meeting together with some other men from our church. We're actually meeting regularly to talk about the Bible and other resources in life together, as I was mentioning just a moment ago. And last weekend, we read um, this section from one of Jonathan Edwards' writing where he, where writings where he talks about spiritual pride. And here's what he said. It should be up behind me. Yep. One under the influence of spiritual pride is more apt to instruct others and naturally puts on the airs of a master, whereas one that's full of pure humility naturally has on the air of a disciple. And then he said this, the eminently humble Christian thinks he wants help from everybody, whereas he that is spiritually proud thinks that everybody wants his help. Some of the people that I want to learn from most are those that would assume they may not have much to teach me. Think of a brother right now who I want to learn from, and his posture is often wanting to come to me to learn from me. I want to learn from him more than he knows. Um, and that spiritual humility is this posture of wanting to learn, not assuming you're the master that everyone needs to learn from, but wanting to learn from others. So, Spiritual pride is a great barrier to seeking wisdom then, isn't it, right? If this is in your heart and you think you have the, this posture of a master, you stop learning from a posture of humility, um, and then that, therefore that's a barrier. So one of the marks of a spiritually wise person is they admit that they need wisdom from God and they ask to learn from others. So the first mark then that we're seeing, big picture here, is a wisdom-seeking life. Now second, it's the spirit-filled life. So there's... Um, a turn here in verse 18 where Paul shifts the focus onto the spirit-filled life. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So we'll pause here for a moment. Paul's main emphasis here is on being filled with the Spirit, but he starts it by contrasting this with getting drunk. Now, I wouldn't have expected that, Right? I mean, it actually makes sense, though, if you think it through, because this contrast of being filled with the Spirit is about influence, being influenced by the Spirit. So we'll come back to this in a couple of minutes. But first, since drunkenness was such a problem in the first century in Ephesus in these areas, which is why Paul said it then, and it's still a big issue in our culture and our lives today, I want to pause here to consider it. So we need to notice what he does and doesn't say here about wine and alcohol. First, he doesn't say here that drinking wine is wrong, right? He says getting drunk on wine is prohibited. So drinking alcohol is not a sin in the Bible. In fact, it's celebrated. Psalm 104 says that wine is a gift from the Lord, and it says this, to gladden the heart of man. God himself has blessed us with the gift of wine to cheer our hearts. 
doesn't mean everyone has to drink. It's not a requirement, but it is to see this as framed as a blessing. Jesus, when he came, do you remember what his first miracle was? He was at a wedding feast, and they ran out of wine. And so he turned water into wine to bring the life of the party back, to show as a symbol of his kingdom that his kingdom is about joy. And Jesus himself instituted the Lord's Supper with wine, right? Bread and wine. Now, many churches like ours have reasons to shift away from this by using juice, but there, there are reasons for doing that in different cultures. But we should always remember that even if we make that decision, that Jesus himself instituted wine, and that is kind of an overarching ideal, even if there's cultural reasons why we may need to shift from that from one season to another, because it's a blessing from the Lord. So drinking wine is not wrong, it's a gift. But while drinking is okay, what does he say? Drunkenness is clearly off limits. Just before this, Paul called us to live every moment of life with incredible intentionality and wisdom. But what happens when someone gets drunk, right? The parts of their brain that make wise decisions are suppressed. I mean, drunkenness often minimizes wisdom and maximizes foolishness. It keeps us from thinking clearly. It, It keeps us from thinking through how to honor the Lord Jesus with our thoughts, our our words, our actions from moment to moment. And this is why the command against drunkenness can also apply to, you know, an issue in our day we're thinking through, the recreational use of marijuana, because it can lead to an altered state of consciousness that makes it hard to be wise, to live every moment thinking through how to honor the Lord Jesus with our lives. And this is also in contrast to being filled with the Spirit, So this is about what we want to influence us, right? We can let alcohol influence us, or we can let the Holy Spirit influence us. That's the contrast Paul's talking about here. So what do we do in light of this? Well, uh, prohibition is not the way to go. Last week, I think Thursday or Friday, marked the 100th anniversary of prohibition in America, 1920. Lasted about 13 years until they pulled that back because it, it ended up being a really bad idea. Um, as a nation. And that's not the best uh, way to go anyways, because we don't want to enforce something that God, uh, enforce a prohibition that God has allowed for us to enjoy in Christian freedom. But God's Word does say that alcohol, in, in, when we drink, are being drunk with alcohol, is a sin. So we need wisdom then, don't we? So here's a few principles. First, know your limit. This is clearly about excess. Having a drink can be a great gift from God. Getting drunk is a sin, and it grieves the Lord. So know your limit. Is it two beers? Then for the glory of Christ, never go beyond it. And for the glory of Christ, if you want to enjoy those in Christian freedom, then do that with thanksgiving, which is the next principle. Give thanks and only drink if you can give thanks. Paul goes on to say that the Spirit-filled life is a life of thanksgiving, right? So if you are not able in any given moment or evening to give thanks while you drink, then you are not in a state to honor the Lord with alcohol. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, drink because you are happy, but never because you are miserable. Never drink when you're wretched without it, but drink when you would be happy without it. That's really helpful. A member of our congregation said that to me a while back. So, 
only drink when you can say to the Lord, I don't need this right now. I'm happy with you, Lord, without this. And so I receive this as a gift from you to gladden my heart, and I will only drink the amount that you approve of. Third, make sure your heart's reliance is on the Spirit and not alcohol. Many people drink to get loose at a social gathering or to numb them from other sorrows or anxieties. But if you use alcohol, if you're dependent on alcohol for that, you need to make sure you're not using it as a God substitute, right? It can be a form of idolatry. You're saying to God in those moments, if you're thinking, man, I really need this because I'm dreading this social event, I just need to relax, or I'm just, I'm anxious about something, I just need to drink this to calm down. If that's your mindset and you're pushing the Lord to the side, you're actually using this as an idol because you're saying to the Lord, I don't need you right now. I'm not going to seek to be relying on the Spirit to fill me. I'm not going to trust you. What I need is this instead of you. So instead, let's rely on the Spirit to fill our hearts, to empower us, to give thanks and to be a blessing to other people in the gathering. And fourth, if you have a problem with alcohol or a drug, the Lord invites you to bring that into the light for restoration, for forgiveness, for healing. And He wants to help you through that. And there's brothers and sisters in Christ who want to help you and walk alongside you uh, in this. And so confess it to the Lord, receive His forgiveness and His renewing power, Confess it to, if you've sinned against others through um, abusing alcohol or a drug, confess your wrongs to them. And then confess this to a brother or sister and ask them for help. Someone that you can trust, who can help you walk through a process of healing. So let's move now to what it looks like on the other side to pursue this spirit-filled life. So he says, don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul calls us to be filled with the Spirit. What does he mean? Well, every Christian, when he or she believes in Jesus, receives God's presence, the Holy Spirit, into their lives. And the Bible describes us individually and as God's people as a temple. So think of the temple in the Old Testament and God's presence filled the temple. We are now the temple of the Lord and He fills us with His Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us. And the language, though, of the New Testament refers to the Spirit dwelling within us, which is this permanent, irrevocable, wonderful reality of God's presence when we come to know the Lord Jesus. Uh, And yet it also refers to this idea of filling uh, often as this occasional iterative reality where the Spirit fills us in certain moments for certain activities. So if you read the book of Acts, you see the Spirit coming to dwell in and with God's people, but then different people are filled with the Spirit and have wisdom, or they're filled with the Spirit and therefore they speak boldly about Jesus to people. And so this idea is this contrast of getting drunk. So rather than being influenced or filled with this power of alcohol, we're filled with the Spirit. We're influenced by the Spirit to live for Christ's glory. So the Spirit fills us to live wisely. He empowers us for ministry and mission. So what does this look like? Well, Paul lists some results here. So he says, be filled with the Spirit, and then he has a string of effects of being filled with the Spirit. We'll just look at a couple of them here. First, here's how you know that you're filled with the Spirit. Here's what it looks like to pursue being filled with the Spirit. First, Christ-centered singing. 
He says in verse 19, you can read it with me, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart or to the Lord in your heart. So, one of the first results of being filled with the Holy Spirit is this kind of heart-rooted, Christ-oriented, happy singing. This is one of the reasons why we sing when we gather. I don't think Paul is speaking exclusively here about corporate gatherings like this morning, but it certainly applies to our gatherings. So, I may come back to this text at some other point in the near future to talk about our singing and our corporate gatherings, but for now, I just want to draw attention to a few principles uh, from which we operate or with which we operate on Sunday mornings that, we, that are rooted here and that we see here in this text. So, here's just a few of the principles we use for Sunday mornings, and I'll show you where we get them here. First, we're dependent on the Spirit. That's obvious here, right? We sing as a result of being filled with the Spirit. So, the Spirit fills us, and as a result of that, we sing to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, on Sunday mornings, we want to be completely dependent on the Spirit to produce in us this kind of heartfelt singing to the Lord. This is one reason why we gather as um, some leaders, some staff, and elders, and other people who participate in the service before the service. We meet to pray before the service every week to pray that the Spirit would do this, that He would fill us as we gather here so that we would sing and pray and respond to His Word in the ways that God calls us to. As I walk up on these steps, I often pray, fill me with the Spirit. Please fill me that I may speak truthfully and courageously and kindly. Um, This is why I'm so grateful for a number of you who receive an email from me on Fridays to uh, pray for the sermon together. And if, if you're not on that list and you'd like to pray um, together with others um, through, in response to this email for our Sunday morning gatherings, just let me know. be happy to add you to the list. Charles Spurgeon, I've mentioned this before, you know, someone asked him, what was the secret of your ministry? You know, how is it so successful? And he said, does anyone remember? You can shout it out. I know I heard it a little bit. That's okay. I don't do that much. So, my people pray for me, right? So, pop quiz in a few weeks. I'll do that again. (laughs) My people pray for me. So, what a gift. Thank you for praying for me and for our whole church family on Sunday mornings and every aspect of what goes in to making our whole gathering across this whole building happen. So, we're dependent on the Spirit. Another principle, we cultivate congregational participation. So, we want to encourage wholehearted participation throughout our entire time gathering on Sunday mornings together. So, we strive to cultivate strong singing together. So, you notice a couple times when even the musicians completely pulled off so we could just hear the voices. And even when the musicians are playing, it's it's a balance here of having people worship God through playing instruments and encouraging and and facilitating loud singing, and then us gathering, joining our voices together to make melody to the Lord with our hearts. So, we want to encourage participation, not just in the singing, but as I mentioned earlier with the praying, we all lean in to join in someone praying. So, when someone prays from up front, it's not just a performance that we're, or it's not we're listening to someone pray for us or pray over us. We're uniting our minds and hearts to pray those very words with that person. Even right now, we're participating as we hear God's Word from Scripture and consider 
how to respond faithfully to it. And we participate as we sing to one another and as we speak words of encouragement to one another. Third principle, we include horizontal and vertical aspects to our service and songs. So he says here that we address one another in our songs and we make melody to the Lord with our hearts. So this is why we want to sing to one another. We want to encourage each other, and we also want to sing to the Lord to express our heartfelt gratefulness to Him. This is why watching a live stream is not um, sufficient, right, of a service, because we're here to encourage and strengthen one another. And fourth, we use a variety of songs and genres. So we pick from older and newer hymns and psalms and songs. This is intentional because Paul uses three different words here, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, or I think that probably is translated... Um, spirit-inspired or spirit-empowered psalms, hymns, and songs. It's just three general words that use, that they're overlapping in meaning, referring to all sorts of kinds of songs. And so, this indicates that there's a sense of variety. And so, there's flexibility and variety in what we sing. So, I'd like to take a moment here and just pause to express gratitude for those who lead us in our singing and Sunday mornings. And in particular, uh, Dave Smith and Larry Moran both have done an incredible job with uh, helping us lead on Sunday morning. So I meet with the two of them uh, every other week on Mondays, and we talk about the previous services, plan for future services, uh, think through things together, and it's a highlight of my week. So grateful for, for them, um, done an incredible job. We announced a few months ago that uh, the primary leadership of the music ministry is transitioning from Larry to Dave, but they're both going to be continuing to be involved together, but Dave will be the primary leader. So grateful for Larry, grateful for Dave um, and their leadership, so I know you are as well. And if you want to read more about just principles that we use for thinking through our services together, we have a, just a short two-page document available. It's at the resource corner at the center round table. It just lists some principles uh, that we use for thinking through our Sunday mornings just to keep us anchored and aligned um, to Bible-rooted principles. And so if you want to think through that, you can grab, there's, there's about 60 copies or so just out on the table in the resource corner, so grab one. If you have any questions or suggestions after reading that, talk to Larry or Dave and I, happy to interact about that. So the first mark of being Spirit-filled is singing. Second mark is thanksgiving. Verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is comprehensive. Always and for everything. This is relevant to every moment of every day. This single verse blows up any idea of a compartmentalized spiritual life. It blows up any idea of some kind of sacred-secular divide because every moment of every day can be an opportunity to give thanks to the Lord, to receive His gifts and respond with heartfelt thanksgiving in worship. Worship is to be this everyday, every-moment reality. And this is saying that the more that we're filled with the Spirit, the more thankful we'll be. And we'll express this thankfulness in all sorts of moments in everyday life. One of my sons taught me what this looks like a couple years ago. Um, he was probably two or three years old. We were sitting on the floor of his bedroom before bedtime, and we're teaching him to pray and to thank God. And so it was his turn to pray. And so he started, 
and he just kept going. He just sat there and said, and God, thank you for the floor and for the door and for this book. Thank you for mommy and daddy. Thank you for brother. Thank you for this book. Thank you for my feet. Thank you for pajamas. Thank you for clouds. Thank you for that window. Thank you for my pillow. Thank you for that bed. You know, just, he just kept going. Um, he did that a few times. And isn't that fitting? Right? If if it is all a gift, should we not thank God for everything? And so I've learned from him, and I will from time to time just stand where I am and just thank God for everything I see and everything I can think, think of. Um, and so I'm really grateful for that lesson. And it's not a bad way to apply this text, so I'd encourage you to consider doing that sometimes on your own as well. So how do we do this practically in addition to that? Well, here's two categories to consider. Think about rhythms in life and moments in life. So rhythms and moments. Rhythms, these are patterns that you set up in your life to pause for Thanksgiving. In my life, I try to make Thanksgiving a part of my morning in prayer. At dinner as a family, we thank God not just for the meal, but we try to thank Him for just something that happened through the day. And for other things that come to mind, before bed, we go around and just share at least one thing that we're thankful for. And um, since we had that history of one of our son just thanking for all these things, it really helps when one of us is like, well, I can't think of anything. It's like, are you kidding? Just look around. There's a million things to be thankful for. I mean, we're breathing right now. Just thank him for that. Um, there's so much to thank God for. We also pause on Friday evenings. We call it uh, Friday Family Feast Night, and we just reflect on the week. How has God been kind to us this week? And we thank him for those things. So find a rhythm that works for you. What are things that you can build into your life, your, your daily rhythm, your weekly rhythm, to give thanks? And I, and I encourage you to share ideas with one another. Ask someone to go out to lunch with you or come over for lunch today or dinner or when you meet together as small groups this week, share ideas. What are rhythms you have in life to cultivate this kind of thankfulness? The second category is moments. So this would be stopping to give thanks whenever it comes to mind. Uh, if you ever have any thoughts to thank God in a day, just do it. I've never met anyone who is too thankful. Uh, so just do it right then and there. And in all of this, remember that thanksgiving flows from seeing and receiving God's grace and being filled by His Spirit. So notice that this isn't just a, gener a general, generic thankfulness, right? Notice what he says here. It's directed to the Father, and it's in the name of Jesus. So think about both of those with me. As we give thanks, it's to the Father. So we have this relationship with a Father who cares for us. Everything that we have is a, is a generous gift from His fatherly heart. And we do this in the name of Jesus, which signals we do this kind of through Him because of His work for us on the cross and His application of forgiveness to us every moment of every day. Every moment that we live we should be in hell, receiving no blessings, but only a curse of God. We deserve that for how we have ignored God and spurned Him and stiff-armed Him and even loved His gifts more than Him. And yet, as long as it's today, He's being gracious to us. And as we trust in Jesus, if we're found safe in Him, it means that not only will we never experience the curse of God, 
but will always and forever experience his blessing because Jesus took our curse on the cross. Right? The only one who deserved to live in perpetual blessing experienced darkness and our curse of judgment and hell for us on the cross so that through his resurrection he might pour out forgiveness and grace to us that we might have that judgment completely removed from us and just live in an ocean of blessing and just swim around under his smile. And that's where we live. That's why every moment of thanksgiving that we offer up is to the Father through Jesus because everything that we have is a gift to us purchased by the blood of Jesus and then given to us uh, by grace. So this is good news. And it's good news because, I mean, I had this text on my mind a lot this week. And even one particular morning, I think Thursday morning it was, I woke up in a rotten mood. I was unthankful. I was grumbly. Christina asked me to do a favor, and I was grumbly for quite a while in my heart about it. She probably read it on my face. I'm sorry. I don't think I apologized to you yet for that. Um, and then I was just unthankful. I, I was not wanting to do anything. I was kind of wanting to be lazy, and then I'm kind of leaving the door to go to work because I was going to spend that morning working on this sermon. And so the text came to mind. I thought, oh, great. <laughs> great. Because I hadn't even, it's not like I was all of a sudden in a better mood. Like, I still was in the midst of it, you know. I'm like, how am I going to work on this sermon, on this text, with this kind of heart? But the good news is, the whole point here is that we get grace uh, the grace of forgiveness for our ungratefulness, and that actually leads us to thankfulness. So even in that moment, the Lord is showering blessing over me, and he receives me again, and he showers grace on me, and that's enough to just turn the heart to sing again. So that's why this is great news, because our own ungratefulness can be turned to an occasion for grateful joy. So that's the wisdom-seeking, spirit-filled life bringing together our head and our heart, our internal reality and our external actions. It addresses every moment of every day. It shows us how the grace of Jesus is relevant to every moment of life. It blows up a sacred secular distinction. It shows us that we can worship God as his priests in everyday life through our vocations and our neighborhoods and the way we serve in our home. And we are swimming in blessing because of Jesus. So this is one of the primary ways that we can be light in a dark world. Individually, together as a church family, just helping to cultivate this community of kindness and joy. And just imagine what would happen if Indianapolis was covered with these communities of light. Just increasing joy. And the Lord's already blessed us with this. And so it's really a well done and all the more kind of sermon. So invite the musicians to lead us in a song and then let's, uh, let's pray first. Our Father, we thank you for all of your blessings through Jesus. We have only been mindful of a fraction of your blessings, and we've only thanked you for a fraction of a fraction. And we thank you that you're so patient and so kind. We pray that you would help us moving forward to have an enlarged capacity to see your goodness in everyday life, even in our grumbling, and that you would Fill us with your spirit to repent of our ungratefulness and to express thankfulness and to live in light of your grace and to live this spirit-filled life of joyful thankfulness in the midst of even our sorrows. 
And we pray now that even as we sing to you, your spirit would work in our hearts, in this room, so that we might sing to you together with hearts of true worship. Uh, This will only happen if you work, so we're completely reliant on you. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand and make a melody to the Lord with our hearts.